Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Is anybody out there? Roll up! Roll up! Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, books, comics, sci-fi, TV, and film, live from the Palace of Glittering Delights! And here, your host, Dr. Leyland. When readers of The Amazing Spider-Man opened issue 39 in the early summer of 1966, they were in for a shock. Without warning, co-creator, plotter, and one of Spider-Man's two daddies, Steve Ditko, had quit the book. Even the participants have conflicting stories as to why this would be, with only Ditko knowing for certain why he left. Ditko, being Ditko, had no interest in rehashing the past, even when he was alive. According to Roy Thomas and related to John Romita in the Two Morrows book All That Jazz, Ditko walked into the Marvel offices to see Sol Brodsky. After some chit-chat, Ditko dropped off some pages of art and left. Brodsky ran straight to Stan Lee's office and that was that. Steve Ditko had left the building. Brodsky even had a memo on his desk to authorise a raise for Ditko. Not that Roy Thomas thought that that would have made any difference to Ditko's decision. Stan turned to John Romita and asked him to take over the art chores on The Amazing Spider-Man. Romita had never read Spider-Man and certainly wasn't aware that it was Marvel's second best-selling book. As such, he said many times that he didn't think Ditko would stay quit. In Romita's mind, you don't quit a high-selling book. Romita leafed through the Ditko Spider-Man books and was impressed with the art, but was curious as to why Stan had tapped him for the gig. He didn't draw anything like Ditko. Romita felt this was proven in Daredevil issues 16 and 17 from earlier that same year, where Spider-Man had made a guest appearance. Romita preferred to stay on Daredevil, where he had bumped up the sales figures. Those same sales figures had increased further when Spider-Man appeared, and perhaps Stan thought that Romita could quell any sales slippage on Spider-Man's own book as a result of Ditko leaving. Whatever Stan's reasoning, Romita took the gig only as a favour to Stan and spent the first six months doing what he himself describes as a not-very-good Ditko imitation before it dawned on him that he wasn't just subbing, but he was really drawing the book. Romita's time on Amazing Spider-Man saw the strip become more glamorous. Romita's background as a romance comics artist meant he was incapable of drawing normal-looking people, something that had been the stock-in trade in Ditko's run. Lee and Romita even had disagreements about this. Again, as related in all that jazz, Stan would complain that Romita was making Peter Parker too muscular, too broad shoulders, and his clothes were too neat. Romita apologised, but he couldn't draw him any other way, try as he might to imitate Ditko. When the sales figures came in, and Amazing not only didn't lose readers but actually increased them, Stan backed off a bit, allowing Romita the freedom to do what he did rather than slavishly try to replicate Ditko. Over time, John Romita's Spider-Man would become the definitive version, used on merchandise throughout the 70s. For me, Romita was always there. I was reading a mixture of Spider-Man comics when I started, from the British reprints, which were all over the place, the up-to-date issues of Peter Parker and Amazing, the Marvel Tales reprints, annuals, and any other media I could get my hands on. Spider-Man was my favourite character, and I snapped up anything with him on it. Romita's work was familiar to me from pocketbook covers, older issues of Spider-Man Comics Weekly, and British annuals. However, there's no denying that when you look at Amazing Spider-Man issue 39, the difference between he and Ditko is night and day. The cover to issue 39 is instantly iconic. Lee clearly liked Romita's style and I think trusted it more than Ditko's. The art is almost naked, unencumbered by silly copy or logos other than the comic's title, and a small ribbon across the bottom that proclaimed, Another Marvel first, Spider-Man and the Green Goblin, both unmasked. It's hard to imagine that any earlier in the run, this text would have been splashed all over the page. Arguably, you don't need any text at all. The art does the job. The Green Goblin, smiling maniacally, drags a hog-tied Peter Parker across the New York skyline on his glider. Peter's shirt and pants are ripped to reveal his Spider-Man costume underneath. The general reaction of the reader is, what the actual... The cover is the reason we have comics covers. There's no way a comics reader of the time could pass this one up. How Green Was My Goblin was scripted by Stan with art by John Romita and Mickey DeMeo, and lettered by Art Simek. 
We open with the goblin talking to himself. Kind of know how that feels. About how the world has forgotten him by now and this would make it the perfect time to strike. He's not wrong. In publishing terms, he's been off the table for over a year. I wonder what he's been up to. Well, apparently he was making new toys and fiddling with his glider. For now is the time to reveal Spider-Man's secret identity to the world. <laughs> in one of the most unrealistic moments in any comic, Peter Parker, feeling like a cold is coming on, drops by Doc Bromwell for a checkup without an appointment. He does this as Spider-Man changing in the broom closet and scurrying the bejeebus out of the poor janitor. This is genuinely one of the funniest moments in a Spider-Man book thus far, especially when Peter tells the guy he thought it was the waiting room. This moment was the inspiration for a scene in Spider-Man 2. I have no evidence for that, but I don't need evidence. This is the internet. Bromwell sees Peter only because he has some important foreshadowing to pass on to Peter. Aunt May is recovering well, Bromwell says as he trowels on the guilt, but she must be exposed to no sudden shocks. Fortunately, Bromwell continues, you lead such quiet lives. Oh, Stanley loves his irony. Over at ESU, so wrapped up in himself is Peter that he ignores Gwen and Flash. However, Harry Osborn is also ignoring everyone due to his own problems with his own family, namely his dad, Norman, who is giving Harry a hard time. This leads to a genuine moment of character growth as Peter listens to Harry's problems and confides in him for the first time that, you know, as bad as it is, at least Harry has a dad. Not only is this a really sensitive moment, but it's also a really good way of showing Harry and Peter's burgeoning friendship. Well done, Stan. Gwen is also happy at this development as she is starting to feel an incomprehensible attraction to the new studly Peter Parker. To clear his head, Peter takes to the web as a Spider-Man and stumbles upon a robbery. Apparently, this robbery is staged, and these guys have been waiting for Spidey to show up. How did they know where and when he'd be passing? Best not to think about it. This robbery is set up by the Green Goblin, who has the crooks throw a strange gas at Spider-Man, which initially seems to cause no ill effects. The cops show up, the hostages are rescued, and Spider-Man swings away. Did these bad guys, who clearly knew this was a ploy, know they were going to get arrested? That seems like a level of loyalty to the Green Goblin that we've not seen before. Prior to this, the Goblin always played his cards close to his chest and worked mostly alone. Also, this action beat is perfectly serviceable, but Spider-Man no longer moves in quite the same way Ditko had him do. Ramita's Spider-Man is more straightforward, none of the freaky poses and off-kilter camera angles that Ditko brought to the fight scenes. I've used this comparison before, but it's the difference between The X-Files when it was filmed in Canada versus when it filmed in LA. It's not wrong, it's just different. Peter sheds his costume and it becomes apparent what the Goblin's plan is. The gas has robbed Peter of his spider sense. I have to wonder when the Goblin learned about Spider-Man's spider sense, but Peter is such a goddamn blabbermouth about it. He must have mentioned it in a fight somewhere. I always thought mentioning the spider sense was stupid. It's such a wonderful ace in the hole. One would have thought he'd have kept it secret for no other reason than prevent stupid things like this from happening. After the longest costume change in comics history, Peter heads to the bugle. There's the customary byplay between Peter and Jonah as Jonah tries to skimp on giving Peter his money. Outside, the goblin has a water funnel with a spike in it to his ear and he learns from this device, which apparently increases his hearing, which is weird given how big his ears are, that Peter's real name is Peter Parker, which should, I thought, have taught Peter the dangers inherent in referring to yourself in the third person. Then, in the best scene in the comic, the Goblin confronts Peter in front of his own house. Everything Peter has ever worried about, Aunt May finding out who he is, his secret revealed, his two lives crashing together happens here, and Ramita does a great job of capturing it, especially in panel 2 of page 16, a great close-up of Peter with his furrowed brow and wide-eyed panic. The Goblin's reaction to Peter's youth is also pretty great. We forget how young Peter must have looked here, and to someone like the Goblin, a man in his mid to late 40s, Peter must have looked like a baby. The Goblin's glider has a smokescreen that prevents Aunt May from seeing what's going on, but presumably doesn't blind the neighbours or any passers-by. Luckily for Peter, there are none. Was Aunt Anna not watching? The fight is well choreographed by Ramita, much more interesting than the fight with the robbers, but that's probably because we haven't really seen Peter fight as Peter before. 
This is a first, and the desperation is well captured. This may be the first time we've seen Peter on the back foot, and understandably so. Perhaps this is why the goblin easily defeats Peter and takes him to his hideout at the waterfront. With Peter bound, the goblin reveals his secret. He is really Norman Osborn, Peter's college friend, Harry's father. What a cliffhanger. A stunning way to end a stunning issue. Ramita hits the ground running, and if his heart isn't as moody as Ditko's, it makes up for it in other ways. This is a very clean-looking book, with the art easy to read and understand. Ramita wasn't the groundbreaker Ditko was, nor are his layouts as idiosyncratic. And yes, it's true, the book has lost its distinctive look. But Ramita's layouts and art are as impressive now as they were 50 years ago. One of the reasons given for Ditko's quitting over the years was the Goblin's reveal, but Ditko seeded Norman as early as issue 23, where Norman was seen as a member of Jonah's Gentleman's Club. Norman's appearances have been increasing of late, showing up in issue 37 and 38, with Harry first appearing in issue 31. In 2009, Ditko wrote an essay for the Comics Journal, in which he stated that he knew from day one who the Goblin was. So whatever the reason Ditko quit, this wasn't it. Issue 40 spoils the story on the cover. Spider-Man stands over a defeated Goblin as the Goblin's hideout burns around them. Spidey saves the day, runs the sparse cover copy. I wonder to this day why Stan thought this was a good idea, as it really robs the issue of drama. With the secret revealed, Peter makes the connection between Norman and Harry and starts winding Norman up about Harry, somebody Norman seems very conflicted about. Peter continues to taunt Norman, who, instead of just killing Peter, tells him his backstory, because, well, because he's a comic book villain. In these flashbacks, we learn that Norman is the kind of father who thinks he can buy Harry's affections. New bikes, baseball tickets, all that stuff. When all Harry really wants is a father who's there for him. We learn more about Harry in these flashbacks than Norman, and we actually start to feel rather sorry for him. Whilst the Goblin reveal can be seen as a bit of a letdown, the impact it has on Harry's character, and how sympathetic it makes him, cannot be underestimated. This is mainly because Norman's origin is just Dr. Octopus's origin, reheated and dished up as new. Norman is fiddling with chemicals he doesn't understand, thanks to his partner Mendel Strom, and they explode in his face. Again, as with Dr. Octopus, his life is saved, but there has been permanent brain damage, although the doctors don't really seem too concerned about any of that. After this, he changes from an inattentive father with an unhealthy obsession with power and wealth into an outright psychopath. Because this is a comic, Norman makes the leap from just being stronger and tougher than before into being a costumed criminal, which doesn't really jibe with his early motivations. The Green Goblin was always a hyped-up crime noir villain. He wanted to control the mobs and the rackets, and his costume was simply a means to that end. Him wanting to be a costumed criminal is a slightly different goal from that which we've seen so far. His reason for choosing to kill Spider-Man is also random, and not really that solid of a motivation. If Norman had picked Daredevil as the focus of his ire, Peter's life would have been so very, very different. In fact, there's a what-if I'd like to read. There are some problems with this story as well. Aunt May is worried about Peter being gone all night, and Betty Brandt prepares to return to New York from Chicago. However, a news bulletin asks why hasn't Spider-Man been seen for days, which is bogus, as he was only seen yesterday fighting the bank robbers. The May scene is presumably late the same night or early the next morning, because she calls Jonah, who's either still at work or has arrived early for the next day. It's the Betty moment that makes no sense. She's either leaving New York very late at night or early the next day. But either way, why does a news network in Chicago do a story on a New York superhero and when they were last seen? There is then a shit ton of padding as Norman uses a retroscope helmet to project mental images of he and Spider-Man's last few fights. What the hell is this shit? It's here Ditko's plotting is sorely missed. You could edit from panel 4 of page 9 to panel 4 of page 11 and miss nothing of import. The only interesting thing about these flashbacks is how deluded Norman plays each one as a victory for him, proving once again that madmen believe their own hype, truth and evidence be damned. Whilst Norman has been blabbing, Peter has been playing for time and manages to free himself, although Norman's ego won't allow for that, and he frees Peter to better allow for a fur fight. Peter sees right through this ploy and says as much. Norman, madder than ever, demands Peter put the costume on, as the fight is between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin, not Peter and Norman. 
As I've mentioned, Ramita's fights are not as visually interesting as Ditko's, but there are a couple of good gags in here, such as the Goblin's anti-Spider-Man explosive. I got nothing. Surely an explosive is anti-whatever it's thrown at. And the Goblin moaning that the reason he's facing defeat because Peter kept him talking, to which Spider-Man retorts, Kept you? Nobody could have shut you up. All through the fight, Spider-Man keeps wondering how to defeat the Goblin, because even if he wins the battle, Norman still knows his secret. Granted, he knows the Goblins as well, so there's a bit of a stalemate here. This is something I don't think the strip ever really recovered from, and this two-part story essentially destroys the Green Goblin as a competent and effective villain in Spider-Man's rogues gallery. Stan uses the oldest and lamest trope in fiction to restore the status quo. At the end of the fight, Spider-Man kicks the Goblin into machinery, and this, combined with an electrochemical discharge, robs Norman of his memory. Even as a kid, I felt this was a piss-poor ending to the story, and it hasn't improved with age. The moment is saved by Peter's compassion. With Norman remembering nothing, Peter elects to remove the Goblin's costume and burn it, and allow Norman to live in ignorance. Peter will have cause to regret this decision in the future. After these two issues, I won't be comparing Ditko and Ramita, as it's not really fair to either artist. I believe Ditko to be quirkier and more original and groundbreaking in his art, but Ramita is a solid and capable sequential artist who helps Spider-Man scale new heights of popularity. He will develop further after he stops trying to be Ditko and flourishes, becoming one of the best artists in the Marvel stable. The disappointment here, though, isn't the art, but the story. When I covered the Ditko-Lee collaboration, I mentioned how different Spider-Man was to other Marvel strips, and just from reading the books, it's obvious how much Ditko was bringing to it. Now, you'll go a long way to find a bigger fan of Stanley than I, but I'm not blind to the work as presented to me, and this issue, from a plot point of view, does not stand up next to the Ditko plots. Issue 39 is fine as a setup, but 40 is a disappointment, whichever way you slice it. Exposition, padded flashbacks, and a half-issue fight scene that isn't dynamic or interesting enough to sustain interest culminates in a deeply cheesy ending. Stan hits all the Spider-Man clichés. Pete has a cold. Pete frets about Aunt May. Aunt May frets about Peter. Jonah is a grouch. Doc Bromwell ladled on the foreshadowing about May. To the point where this supposed epoch-making issue feels like a, a bit of a letdown. Oh, I know it's a classic. I just don't believe it. This feels like Stan wanted the Goblin subplot out of the way as quickly as possible. The issue closes with Peter returning home to find Doc Bromwell making a house call. For the people who pay attention to such things, it's still nighttime, early morning. From the pacing, I reckon this story takes place over one night, making the Betty Brant scene make even less sense. Norman and Harry also seem to make up. Issue 41 is where the Ramita era really begins in earnest, and this is proclaimed loudly on the splash page. The Horns of the Rhino features a new villain, one who dominates the cover. The splash is symbolic rather than part of the story, a throwback to the early days. Both are good and set up the issue within. The opening is typical of the era. Aunt May continues to fret about Peter. Peter is off proving he's not as fragile as she thinks she is, in this case buying a motorcycle. And J. Jonah Jameson is being a bit of a bastard, granting Peter the credit reference he needs to buy his motorbike because Jonah feels he can charge Peter less for his photos. Jonah is chatting with his son John, last seen in issue one, if we ignore untold tales, and this is pretty good setup for the next issue. John wonders why his dad hates Spider-Man, given that Spidey saved John's life. There's a funny moment here where John asks Jonah who told him the ridiculous story that Spider-Man saved John just to claim the glory, and Jonah says, No one! I made it up! Which is genius. John foreshadows why he's here. On his last mission to space, he was exposed to some weird spores, and despite looking unaffected, he's been assigned an FBI bodyguard so no foreign power can kidnap him and dissect him. Elsewhere, a massive man in a grey fat suit and with a horn on his head stomps toward the southernmost border. I'm not sure where this is, the Mexican border, the Canadian border, but Stan doesn't give a shit, so why should I? This is the first appearance of the Rhino, who will go on to be a Hulk villain largely, mainly because he's a big lunkhead who punches things really hard. Not really a good match for Spider-Man. Speaking of Spider-Man, Peter Parker bumps into Betty Brant, who only arrived a few minutes ago. Betty was travelling by train, so this is presumably a day or so later than the last issue. 
They go for a coffee to catch up, but find that they have drifted apart and have nothing to say. This was one of the places where Stan really excelled. This felt real to me. Betty wasn't Spider-Man's lowest lane. She was the first girl he dated and ultimately didn't go anywhere. Despite what the films may have you believe, Spider-Man never really had a Lois Lane. Ned Leeds shows up and Peter is happy to leave and let them catch up. The coffee shop must be near the Bugle, which makes sense, and Peter sees Jonah and John leave. He thanks Jonah for being his guarantor. Jonah says he wants pictures of the rhino in return. The plot lines collide when the rhino kidnaps John Jameson, leading him into conflict with Spider-Man. There is some fun to be had putting Spider-Man against a foe whose sole power is hitting things really, really hard because it means Spider-Man has to use his wits to survive. By and large, this consists of staying out of the way and letting the rhino take himself out. Spider-Man uses the rhino's own power against him, slamming the rhino's face into the pavement over and over until he passes out. It's all rather pedestrian. Peter goes to pick up his bike and meets up with the ESU crew where he flirts outrageously with Gwen Stacy who doesn't seem to mind. This is where the Gwen-Peter relationship really begins. Up till now, Gwen has had her eye on Peter, but he's still been wrapped up in himself, or Betty, to notice. But now, with no ill relatives or ex-girlfriends haunting him, he's finally put Betty to rest and noticed what a fox Gwen is. She's still the Ditko version, really, Ramita not having made her his own yet, but this is another example of Stan moving on from the earlier issues and setting up the college life of Peter Parker. These changes will continue to come thick and fast, with next issue teasing the first appearance of Murray Jane Watson. As such, it's a shame the issue as a whole is a rather lazy one, with six pages of lacklustre fighting carrying the story. A story that has a lot of interesting elements that just aren't really given room to breathe. Issue 42's cover has John Jameson in a spacesuit beating the crap out of Spider-Man. The birth of a superhero opens with one of the best openings in a Spider-Man comic. The narrator, well, okay, Stan, tells us that this is not a dream, nor an imaginary sequencer, little jab at DC Comics there, and that this really is Spider-Man in the process of robbing a bank. Rather comically, the bag has cute little dollar signs on it. Our hero swings away and alights upon the Queensborough Bridge, aka the 59th Street Bridge, thanks Simon and Garfunkel, where he dumps the bag of money in the East River. We cut to the bugle where Fred Foswell tells Ned and Betty, who seems to have just wandered right back into her job, about Spidey's latest activities. But Jonah is at Kennedy Airport seeing John off. Due to the spores though, John has a delayed reaction metamorphosis and he becomes a mini hulk, increasing in size and strength. His intelligence decreases though, which is interesting. As with the Hulk and other super strong monsters in the Marvel Universe, Stan seems to equate strength and power with intellectual weakness. John's intelligence dip makes him easy to manipulate, and his dad does just that, convincing him to go after Spider-Man after Jonah learns of the morning's events. John is now decked in a super suit designed to keep his power in check, but it doesn't seem to be terribly effective. Jonah is back to being a real dick here, manipulating his only son into pursuing the wall crawler rather than seeking help, his Jonah at his lowest. His blind hatred of Spider-Man causes our flat-topped journalist to behave in seriously questionable ways. Over at a courthouse, doctors struggle to cut off the rhino's suit. Daredevil's bud, Foggy Nelson, is assigned the rhino's case, and the rhino has a minor scene, but is quickly tranquilised to take him out of the picture. All of this neat encapsulating of the previous issue is handled very well by Stan, and it doesn't feel like bad exposition, rather part of a new story. We then head over to ESU, where Gwen invites Peter to a party she is throwing, but he can't go because of his promise to Aunt May to finally meet Anna Watson's niece that night. More small steps in the direction of getting Peter and Gwen together. It's not too much of a stretch to assume the reason Gwen is throwing this party is to get closer to Peter. It doesn't seem like it's a birthday or anything like that, merely a typical student kegger. After class, Spider-Man swings around New York and just happens to run into John, who tells him his dad was clearly right about him and it's time to bring Spider-Man to justice. For the second issue in a row, Spider-Man fights a big dumb lug whose main power is to hit stuff really hard. Because he doesn't want to hurt John, Spider-Man smacks him over the head with a web pack full of bricks and buggers off. His mind returns to this morning where, as Peter Parker, he was in the bank when his spider sense started tingling. He quickly realised there was a bomb in the bag and broke in to take it and dump it in the river. This didn't seem like a terribly well thought out story beat, being here just to open the issue with a shocking image. We never find out who planted the bomb or what the plan really was. 
Presumably, a bomb in the vault would destroy some of the money, and the bag would have to be positioned just right to take out the safe wall or door. It's completely irrelevant, as even Spider-Man doesn't seem interested in finding out what all this was about. Spider-Man swings over to Jonah to tell him the truth, and lo and behold, Jonah calls the bank to be told that no money is missing. Now, if Jonah were a smart newsman, he'd have written this up as an exclusive and issue a special edition before sundown. After all, he's the only person with this story. But John suddenly arrives, and as with the Goblin and Dr. Octopus before him, exposure to the strange spores has made him lose his sanity. All he wants to do now is crush, kill, destroy Spider-Man. John finds Spidey in a very contrived way, and as they fight, Spider-Man lures him to a power station. Exactly as he did with the Green Goblin, Spider-Man pushes John into an electromagnetic field, the feedback from which zaps his power, and he's normal again. If I were a cynical man, I'd say Stan was rehashing the same ideas and making the strip more formulaic in the process. Spidey calls the cops, and all that remains is the thing this issue is most famous for. The first appearance of Murray Jane Watson. Peter wakes up the next day, which is Sunday, which begs the question why everyone was at school yesterday. Time seems to cause Stan endless problems, so we'll do him a favour and we'll just ignore it. Peter is resigned to his fate and accompanies May to Anna's for dinner. We are then treated to one of the single most famous, most imitated, and most iconic panels in the history of Spider-Man comics. Peter's first meeting with the voluptuous redhead who will change his life forever. Originally conceived as a vacuous urhead and based on Anne Margaret, Murray Jane is depicted here with her shoulder-length red hair loose around her neck, her famous bangs in place wearing a figure-hugging sleeveless black round neck and purple hip-huggers. Face it, tiger, she says. You just hit the jackpot. According to all that jazz, Ramita doesn't remember if Stan held off on featuring Murray Jane for fear Ditko's interpretation wouldn't be sexy enough, or if it was happenstance. But given that Stan was clearing the deck of any dangling plot holes, it seems pretty obvious that this was just another thing to get out of the way so as to concentrate on moving the strip forward. Issue 43, Rhino on the Rampage, has Spider-Man fighting the Rhino again on the cover as rubberneckers look on. Stan seems to be having an allergy to cover copy at the moment, and the art is all the better for it. We pick up pretty much where we left off. It's still Sunday evening, and the Rhino makes another break for it. This time, he succeeds in escaping, vowing revenge on Spider-Man as he legs it to New York. Over at the Bugle, Ned and Betty have got engaged, which seems remarkably quick, given that she only arrived back in town yesterday, and Peter isn't eating, as he's too busy stirring into the luscious green eyes of Murray Jane. Murray Jane is a real breath of fresh air, and I can see why she took off with the readers the way she did. Not as needy or clingy as Betty, not as much of an ice queen as Gwen, nor is she as boring as the other Marvel romances of the time, where characters like Betty Ross, Pepper Potts and Sue Richard seem to spend all of their time pining for their man. Mary Jane is the first Marvel female character who seems happy in who she is. She's not after a boy, nor is she looking for a relationship. Mary Jane just wants to dance and have fun. Stan wanted her to be a go-go dancer type character, really tapping into the teenage culture of the time, and Ramita really plays that up in this sequence. It really emphasises the mischaracterization of the character in the Sam Raimi movies, films I otherwise enjoy. Kristen Dunst is not Murray Jane, at least not this Murray Jane. Murray Jane has sass to spur, as evinced by her entrance line, and the part really needed an actress who could command the screen as well as looking the part. Scarlett Johansson probably could have pulled it off, Emma Stone, maybe Molly Quinn, Debbie Ryan, some of the others from the Disney stable. Peter and Mary Jane are getting to know each other watching TV when news of the Rhino's breakout interrupts Boss Beat Bandstand, which seems to be the US equivalent of Top of the Pops. Peter wonders how he can get away, but MJ provides him with the perfect excuse. Let's go see the Rhino in person, she says. It was later added to continuity that Murray Jane knew Peter was Spider-Man from the beginning. Literally the beginning. She sees Peter leave the house as Spider-Man to go and catch Uncle Ben's killer. And this has never worked for me, but I can see how this scene could subsequently be read as MJ covering for Peter. After a scene where Foggy Nelson and Matt Murdock have a chat about the Rhino's legal counsel, the Rhino remembers his own origins. He was a mindless thug, a drone performing menial tasks for professional spies. As dumb as he was, he was perfect for experiments whereby a second skin was applied to his body that provided him with the strength of a rhino. He turned the tables on his doctors running away when he could to sell himself to the highest bidder. 
We never find out who sent him after John Jameson, nor do we find out the rhino's real name until many years later. This fight is much more fun than the last one, though, as Spidey has to keep the rhino away from the bystanders as well as fight him, although it does go all over the street, so I have no idea how he manages to get decent photos. Spidey is defeated here, and in one of the defining moments of the series, pulled to safety by a regular beat cop. This is a great scene. Spider-Man even takes a moment to thank the guy and shake his hand. A wonderful moment of Spider-Man really being a friendly neighbourhood hero. Peter changes back into his civvies and spots a piece of Rhino's hide on the floor, which he pockets for later. He takes MJ back to her apartment, not back to Aunt Anna's, meaning MJ has her own place at 18 years of age. I wonder how she affords that in New York. This is also a moment of foreshadowing and that Peter longs for his own place. Peter heads to the bugle, gets a nice check, and overhears a plot point. John Jameson has been moved to Westchester Hospital. Peter seems the only one concerned that the rhino may strike again, and decides to do something about it as Spider-Man. He stops off at Dr. Curtis Connor's lab and asks if he can help with his rhino problem. They work together to come up with something that may help. Spider-Man then arrives at Westchester thanking the lack of traffic, which... I didn't understand. What would bad traffic have to do with web-slinging? I originally thought perhaps he took his bike, but there's no visual evidence to support this. Was this just a gag that went over my head? He's just in time and the rhino attacks John in his hospital room and, of course, our hero leaps into the fray. This is, again, a shorter but more interesting fight as we see Spider-Man once again trying to protect others and using his brains to stop a villain that has none. He sprays the rhino with a webbing compound created by himself and Connors that covers the rhino head to toe. Slowly, the compound breaks down the makeup of the rhino's suit and it dissolves, leaving the rhino naked and easy to take down. One punch later, the rhino is arrested, John thanks Spidey, Jonah fumes, and all ends well, until Stan tells us that he planned the issue wrong and they actually have a page left. So Stan uses this last page to piss all over Peter's happiness. He encounters Flash, Harry and Gwen in Flash's convertible. This is still Sunday night, so what happened to Gwen's party? Flash tells Peter that he's been drafted and Peter ponders the draft and what will happen if he's called up. Harry doubts they take Peter as he's a scholarship student at the top of his class. Peter returns home to find Aunt May has run out of medicine and hasn't refilled her prescription due to a lack of money. He calls Mary Jane to call off their date and she doesn't really seem to give a shit. Happening Ms. Watson has better things to do than hang around by the telephone. The issue closes with Peter wondering when he's going to get his life together. This was the best issue yet since Ramita took over. It felt like the series had been falling into a formula for the past few issues, but this one breaks that streak, being a story that is entertaining, full of action and drama, and gives the characters something to do, even if they only appear briefly. MJ is a great addition to the cast, Flash looks like he may be being written out, and Spidey wins the day with his smarts, not with his fists. Interestingly, all of these stories since Ramita took over seem to take place over the course of one week in Peter's life, meaning that if Stan is paying attention, and that is in no way a given, we are starting to move away from Peter ageing in real time. This will vacillate depending on the writer. Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 3 slots in here. There's a great cover by Ramita of Spider-Man fighting the Hulk as the Avengers look on, but this story never really did anything for me. It seems to exist just to answer the question of why Spider-Man never joined the Avengers, and on that score it succeeds. To test out Spider-Man for membership, the Avengers ask Spidey to bring in the Hulk, but Spidey elects not to when he finds out the Hulk is tortured scientist Bruce Banner. Spidey thinks the Avengers want to imprison Banner, although they actually want to help him. There are some funny moments, such as Spider-Man ignoring Jonah ranting by taking a casual drink from the water cooler, the wasp lusting openly after Daredevil whilst her boyfriend is in the room, and Banner just casually telling Spider-Man his real name. But overall, this isn't a favourite. It closes with almost the exact same panel as issue 43. Issue 44, where crawls the lizard, is another great piece of Ramita art, with the lizard tearing Spider-Man's webbing as they fight in the sewer. As with a lot of Ramita's art, this became a popular clip art piece for merchandise and such. The splash page is brilliant. A bustling train station in New York and Peter and Aunt May are discussing a trip to the seashore, being just what the Doctor ordered for her. Quite literally, as this is a directive from Doc Bromwell. In the foreground, Dr. Curtis Connors looks panicked as his hand turns scaly and green, the symbolic spectre of the lizard hovering over his head. 
It seems that this is the point where the Ditko imitation wheels came off Romita's drawing hand, and he really embraced drawing the book. Connors is waiting for his wife and son to arrive from Florida. He realises, though, that the potion he helped Spider-Man make that defeated the Rhino contains elements of the potion that transformed him into a human lizard. The panic takes over his body, and he flees before the metamorphosis can take full effect. Martha and Billy Connors, just arriving, spot him running into a train tunnel, just as the lizard lives again. Marvellous, marvellous stuff, this. Sure, it's a massive coincidence that Peter should be at the train station at the same time as Kurt is, but maybe May is going on the train to Florida that the Connors just got off. Could be a circular, you never know. Connors' reason for changing works, and besides, Romita draws a great lizard. And it's not as if the character has been overused. He last appeared nearly 40 issues ago. Peter spots Martha and Billy looking panicked and switches to Spider-Man to help out. This is another great way to ply the guilt on Peter. He doesn't know it, but by helping him last issue, Kurt has basically sealed his own fate, and Peter would feel terrible if he knew. Stan was good at laying the guilt trip on Peter, although I don't think this is an element that he's focused on. Spider-Man swings into the Penn Station tunnel, but the lizard has long ago disappeared through a hole in the tunnel wall. Spidey goes back and tells the Connors not to worry, and they should go to his lab. Spidey vows to keep looking, but recognises that he could be anywhere under the city, and the best bet is to wait for the lizard to surface. Therefore, he heads to the Bugle to try and score up a gig, even being willing to chuck the lizard under a bus to make some cash. This was a bit off of Peter. He promised not to tell anyone about the lizard after helping Kurt cure himself, so this felt like selling out a friend. Fred Foswell eyes Peter suspiciously, thinking there may be a story in how Peter gets his exclusive photos. Peter then heads to the Silver Spoon, a greasy spoon cafe, where he and the ESU guys hang out. I think this may be its first appearance. When asked why he skipped a class, he simply says he had important personal things to deal with, and this is typical Parker. He always plays his life close to the vest, never letting anyone in. I also wondered why May was okay with him missing a class. There's more on Flash being drafted and a mention of Metro U star quarterback Whitey Mullins, so named because he's a white supremacist. I'm kidding. This was actually a nice touch. Whitey has been in the Fantastic Four as Johnny Storm and Wyatt Wingfoot go to Metro U, and this kind of thing made the Marvel Universe feel like a real place. Mary Jane happens by, which causes all of the men who are present blood to rush from their heads to other places. They are especially stunned when she knows Peter and takes him away to a happening spot with the grooviest guitarist in town. Gwen freezes, threatened and jealous of Mary Jane, and it sets up the relationship going forth. They weren't really friends at the beginning, more like rivals. Mary Jane is again a gas. She doesn't hang around in greasy spoons like these other kids. Mary Jane hangs out in bars where the music is live and real and the men aren't boys. Poor Flash never had a chance. At this point, the story covers an awful lot of ground in a very short time. The lizard prepares to strike, and to do this he needs to rob a jewellery store. He wants Spider-Man to be blamed for the robbery, meaning he'll either be too busy to bother with the lizard, or he'll go after the lizard, meaning the lizard will get to fight him to the finish. The lizard plans to return to Florida to continue his plan for reptilian domination. How he's going to get to Florida is something I presume he'll worry about later. He robs the store and predictably the police blame Spider-Man after seeing a vague shape in the dark from a good few blocks away climb up a wall. The Bugle rushes out a special without Jonah's approval, which is probably why Jonah hires Robbie Roberts in in a few issues time, and Peter spends all day fretting about this. He can't skip another day of class though, but being as the lizard only comes out at night there's not a lot else he can do. So he daydreams through class and then can't even concentrate on painting his bike a new colour, something he's only doing because Murray Jane mentioned how blur his bike looked. That's a lot to happen in only a page and a half, Stan. As night falls, Spider-Man takes to the streets, locates the lizard and sets up his camera. Again, the fight goes in alleys, in sewers, across the street and up the side of a wall so bystanders can see Spider-Man and another person wall crawling, which exonerates him. I'm still amazed by exactly how wide-angle Peter's camera must be, though. Spider-Man is at a disadvantage here, as he doesn't want to hurt Kurt, something the lizard couldn't give a toss about. As such, Spider-Man is caught off guard as the lizard tail slices through his web line and he falls to the floor, seriously hurting himself. A doctor just happens to be in the crowd, and he patches up Spider-Man's arm, but the lizard escapes. A lot to look at here, but it's largely just nitpicky stuff. 
Spider-Man says he'll return for his camera later, which he does off-panel next issue, but he never has the lizard pictures developed or sells them to Jonah, which is for the best, I think. The Bugle does run a lizard story, but seemingly without pictures. When the Doctor rips Spidey's sleeve off, where does his web shooter go? It's not on his wrist. Spidey has a dislocated and swollen shoulder. He barely manages to visit the Connors to tell them about Kurt, and then changes in an alleyway into a convenient overcoat that he has. But Peter left as Spider-Man from home. He didn't change in an alley. Where did these clothes come from? After returning home, Peter phones Aunt May, who's still worrying about him, and Murray Jane, who has a ticket for him to see her dance tomorrow, which he blows off. Stupid boy. The issue is good, but very packed, and with it being a two-parter, I think it could have been paced a little better. As it is, there isn't much difference between the end of this issue, the last one, and the annual, and there's a bit too much repetition. Ending this after the second fight with the lizard, where Spider-Man is injured, could have let the midsection play out a little slower and more organically, and next issue could have started with Spider-Man being patched up by the Doctor, trimmed the ending off this issue, and gone from there. 45's cover has Spider-Man, his arms still bandaged up, face the lizard in a symbolic web. Spidey smashes out, picks up a day or so later. Spider-Man, arm still in a sling, takes out some hijackers just to see how well he can perform with a busted arm. It's a low-key opening. The lizard, meanwhile, has tripped over to the Connors' house where he hopes to learn how Connors transformed into the lizard, but he can't read science. He throws a strop and leaves as Martha and Billy worry about Kurt. The next day at the Bugle, Foswell considers following Peter again, but Jonah orders him to follow up on the lizard story. Jonah seems to have changed his tune about the lizard since last issue. I guess actually seeing him will do that to you. Betty and Ned are deep into planning the wedding, which makes one wonder why it took until issue 156 to actually get around to it. Peter, meanwhile, is still feeling sorry for himself, but his day takes a turn when Harry Osborne tells him his dad is looking for help. I really wish they'd followed up on this and had Peter work for Norman Osborne properly. It seems ripe with story possibilities, but either Stan forgot about it or decided it was too much of a change for the strip. Harry name drops MJ, but Peter is obsessed with Gwen. There's a cameo for Aunt May, but no explanation as to why she's reading a New York local newspaper in Florida. Spider-Man learns that there is an exhibit of reptiles in Philadelphia and deduces that the lizard may be heading there, so he jumps on a train to find him. He does so, and the traditional fight ensues when it turns out that the lizard is on the same train that is transporting the reptiles to that very venue. For some reason, the reptiles on the train are loose in the carriage, not in cages or anything, allowing the lizard to let them run free. This fight lasts for most of the issue with various interruptions for subplots to remind us that they are still around. The fight culminates when Spider-Man lures the lizard into a refrigerator car, and as a reptile he passes out due to the cold. After taking the train back to New York, Spider-Man returns to Connor's lab, where for some reason he blames the scorpion for the damage, and he manages to replicate the formula that returns the lizard back to Kurt Connors. I've kind of zoomed through the fight, because largely it's pretty much what we've seen before. Bringing back the lizard isn't an inherently bad idea, and the story itself is fine, but ultimately the lizard as a character really only has one story, and the end of that story is always the same. Peter cures him. Or, you know, he can eat his family. Whatever. The train car staff is fun and quite like a western where the cowboys would fight on top of a train as they tried to rob it, but the outcome is never really in any doubt. Doesn't make it a bad issue, though. The subplots are more interesting. Murray Jane pops over to Anna's to take Peter to the Frenzier Go-Go Club, but he's not in. She does admit to Anna that Peter really turns her on, despite being a bit of a squirr. Later on, she seems to be out with Harry, despite Burley acknowledging his existence in the last issue. Peter goes home, where Anna Watson brings him some vegetable soup because he can't cook for himself, and then he sits in the dark wondering if he will ever be able to shake off the spectre of Spider-Man. Inadvertently or not, Lee and Ramita are setting up issue 50. The story closes with the Connors thinking that Spider-Man is a man who probably wants for nothing. Oh, Stan and your irony yet again. And we'll call it a day there, picking up with the next issue next time. Now a commercial break, and then we'll be back with your emails. I regret to say, sir, Batman and Robin are not at present available. What? Oh, surely you, you must be jesting. Alas, sir, I am not. 
Gotham City is overcome by villainy on the comic page from the likes of the Joker, the Riddler, and the Penguin, as they run rampant only one man has the courage, the gall, and the skills to face the Silver Age. Hi, I'm J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. If you haven't guessed, this is an overly dramatic promo for my show, The Dave Cave, a Batman podcast looking at the tales of the dynamic duo from the Silver Age. Come back with me to a time when Batman was less grim, Robin was content to wear hot pants, and the villains didn't rip their own faces off. Each episode will examine a tale from the pages of comics such as Batman, Detective Comics, The Brave and the Bold, and World's Finest Comics. It's all the bat action, bat adventure, and bat puns that you can handle on The Dave Cave, available at thedavecavepodcast.com, iTunes, or the podcatcher of your choice. The Dave Cave Batman Podcast, because in the Silver Age, there were no limits. Holy unsatisfying ending. And we're back. Email time. I need a jingle for that, don't I? Anyway, our first email tonight is from Chris Franklin. Hello, Christopher. I thought you'd abandoned me. That's all about me, isn't it? Hello, Andy. Hello, Chris. Very interesting discussion about reboots. I agree Magnum looks so by the book, it's painful. Unfortunately, it's the wrong book. Rebooting Buffy would also be a crime. Better continue with it, as you suggest. One show I can't believe hasn't been rebooted yet is The Greatest American Hero. It seems that with the proliferation of superhero films and TV shows, the times could not be better to give the show another reboot after the failed Greatest American Heroine pilot that is now 30 years old. I think a continuation might be a good way to go with this one too, since at least William Cat and Connie Seleka are still with us. But if they did want pure reboot, I wouldn't balk, as long as they put the emphasis on the characters and actors the original show did. The hook is the half-assed superheroics, but the heart was the back and forth between Robert Culp, Cat, and Seleka. I know it has been some kind of development hell for decades, but we can all use another everyman superhero right now, don't you think? Uh, yes. I think The Greatest American Hero would be perfect for a reboot, as long as you, like you say, the emphasis was on character. Because, um, obviously, I watched a couple of episodes of The Greatest American Hero on YouTube when I was doing my Cowboys episode. And The Greatest American Hero is still wonderful. Stephen J. Cannell had that thing where he could take the idea of these TV shows that could be somewhat formulaic, but he made them interesting every week by focusing on the character. And it's one of those instances where his biggest success, which was the A-Team, kind of ruined him for a short time. Because then he just, he kept churning out the same stuff, you know, the A-Team and Riptide and all of that. And then when the A-Team finished, he he got back to doing character-based action dramas again, like Hardcastle and McCormick. So yeah, a Greatest American Hero reboot would not be frowned upon by my good self. Someone else who would not frown upon a Greatest American Hero reboot is Sir Thomas of Panarese. Hello, Tom. Andy. I loved your recent look at reboots and reboot ideas on Palace. I'm not a fan of reboots or remakes for the most part, but a few have caught my eye from time to time, and I've even enjoyed some. The V reboot from a number of years ago had promise at the beginning, but was ultimately so slow-moving and boring that I checked out about halfway through the first season. Uh, yep. Interrupting Tom's email to say exactly the same. I did exactly the same thing with V. I thought it had an awful lot of potential. Uh, it had Marina Backer in, which is at least pleasant on the eye. Uh, and it just it was just boring as hell. You know, V was a lot of things, even when it went to a weekly series. But it was really boring. Even when it was utterly, utterly terrible, it wasn't boring. On the flip side, my in-laws watched the Hawaii Five-O reboot on, and the episodes I have seen have been entertaining. Then again, I think a show like that was easy to reboot or remake, considering it's just a cop show set in Hawaii. Magnum P.I., on the other hand, is a well-crafted show that is so much its lead actor, star, that I think it'll be much harder to pull off. I enjoyed hearing some of your ideas, especially the Six Million Dollar Man. I loved this idea. It combines topical political content with a procedural that, while formulaic at times, would probably prove revenue generating, which is all the networks really want from a show like this. They need to sell ad space, and if they can get a sci-fi action show that also has the familiar look of the shows that attract a huge volume of viewers, they'll go for it. 
If I were to propose a reboot relaunch of a series, it would be someone, it would be that someone, sorry, try to bring back the greatest American hero. And I can't imagine why nobody has tried this already, beyond the rights to the original series possibly being too entangled to make the effort. But if they were to go for it, they could do a next generation type series, with William Cat playing Ralph and the actual hero in this case being his son or someone who gets the suit without the instruction manual again. Or they could go the whole reboot and change nothing except for giving us better flying effects. Then again, I am biased and have been making my way through the first season recently, which holds up incredibly well 35 years later. In fact, the biggest hurdle for any remake or reboot of this show would be casting someone who can fill Robert Culp's shoes. Anyway, great episode as always, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you have next. All the best, Tom. Well, you and Chris are of like mind. I, I agree with you. I think that Robert Culp would be the hardest person to replace. I'm sure they could find an actor who would be as good in that role as he was. But uh, yeah, he was he was brilliant in Greatest American Era. Hmm. Anyway, that's it. Oh, by the way, Tom has just done... A series of shows, very, very, very dear to this this show's heart. He has done a seven-episode look at syndication television in America, which is different to how our television is produced. But it was fun to listen to, and how many of those syndicated shows did make it over here in some shape or form or fashion. Uh, that is on Pop Culture Affidavit, which is of this here parish. So you can swan over to where you download my episodes, download Tom's episodes... On that subject, his recent episode about Baywatch was really fun. And kind of something I'd do. You know? So if you like this shit, you'll like that shit. It's the way it works. As ever, the Palace of Glitter and Delights is a proud member of the TTF network. And Siri is dictating what I'm saying. Yes. There you go. And Siri's not going to understand a single word of what I just said. So we'll ignore that. I will say we're a proud part of the TTF network. Don't know how I activated Siri. Um, and what was I saying? Oh yeah, go and go over to the website, click on the button, buy your shit through Amazon, we get kicked back, all that stuff. Um, and I'll be back Sorry, next. <laughs> there she like goes. Thank you for that, Siri. It's very much appreciated. Um, and, well, I, she's completely made me lose my train of thought. Uh, next time, uh, it's the second part of this John Romita look with the next batch of issues from his uh, initial year as penciler on The Amazing Spider-Man. And I hope you'll join me for that and that you enjoy it as much as I did. And remember, everything's going to be okay. <laughs>